This episode of Working Lunch is fueled by Wendy's. Frank and our good friends up in Dublin are getting kind of creative in the meta meta universe in, 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 in gamesmanship. What's going on in Dublin? You tell me, Joe. I want to see your breakdown of this new technological development that Wendy's is diving into. There's just no way I can understand kind of what it is, but it's gaming. It's kind of social media gaming. It's this Wendy Town Square and customers can go in and kind of just kind of play a game. You can go to the bunk biscuit dome and shoot hoops with a virtual baconator and all kinds of stuff. So there's kind of, kind of uh, some meal tie-ins to that as well, offering sausages, egg and cheese sandwiches for a dollar after you get the app and you download the app for the month of April. It's kind of a social, social gathering, social media experience, the Wendy's experience without going into a Wendy's. What do you think about that? Was mm-hmm. that good? Was that a good translation? Yes. No, it's terrible. Wendy's is in partnership with Meta. They are watching the Wendy's verse, which is essentially virtual reality, a little Wendy's game. Are you ready for the metaverse, Joe? I don't even know what a metaverse is, frankly. Yeah. Well, a lot of the headlines coming out of the initial launch of the metaverse and, and is, you know, nonstop groping and, you know, all kinds of Apparently, you have like a personal bubble where you can shield off people from attacking you, but you know it's hard for people to figure out. And so, just whenever you enter the Wendy's verse or the Metaverse for the first time, I want you to uh, to let me know so I can I can just enter and and watch your your whole experience. But, uh, but, but can I get a baconator and a frosty in there? Because that's really all I want. Because that's what I love at Wendy's: the baconator and that signature frosty is just phenomenal. I'm sure you can. The question, Joe, is. Is it as good as it is in real life? This is this is getting way too metaphysical for us, Franklin. Yeah, I agree. And on that ethereal note, let's do the pod. Can I help you? We need to talk about your flair. I think I'm going to have to go supersize. I'm proud to be a bartender. Ain't nothing wrong with that. We need a political revolution. Mr. Vice President, I'm speaking. Come on, man. With all due respect, that's a bunch of malarkey. From the home office of Aligned Public Strategies in downtown Orlando, Florida, this is Working Lunch. Coming up on the podcast, 7-Eleven franchisees in Massachusetts have renewed hope in their ongoing litigation against the company, contending that they are little more than glorified store managers and should be paid minimum wage and receive other worker protections afforded under the law. We're joined by Jeff Hanscom, the International Franchise Association's Vice President of State and Local Government Relations, to help us understand the state Supreme Court's ruling and what impact it may have on the franchise business model. And the unions organizing Amazon and Starbucks had a big week with major high-profile wins in New York, Arizona, and Tennessee. We'll discuss the momentum in the labor community and what that means for employers. And the Disney saga continues this week as the rancor between the company and the Florida governor continued to escalate. We'll discuss that as well. We'll discuss those issues and wrap it up with a legislative scorecard. Hi, everybody, and welcome to the show. I'm Joe Kefauver, along with my Align Public Strategies partner, Franklin Coley. And Franklin, we talked last week about 7-Eleven, and you gave us kind of a, a, a recap of what was happening in Massachusetts and the Supreme Court ruling up there. And we thought uh, it would be a good idea to have actually somebody that knew something come on the pod. So we uh, asked Jeff Hanscom at International Franchise Association to come on the pod and kind of walk us through uh, what happened up there and what it, what it kind of means going forward for the franchise business model. So let's get to that interview. Well, as many of you will remember, last week we talked, I wouldn't say at some length, but a little bit about the Massachusetts case, the Supreme Court 
in the Commonwealth of Massachusetts ruling uh, kind of against 7-Eleven and for their franchisees, really a classification of worker issue and some 7-Eleven franchisees claiming that they're basically glorified store managers, should be paid minimum wage and other protections, yada, yada, yada. And we said at the time last week, maybe we would have uh, an expert from IFA come on and help us kind of sort through all that. And lo and behold, Jeff Hanscom, the dean of all things state and local for the International Franchise Association, kind enough to stop by. Jeff, really appreciate you having uh, coming back on the pod. Yeah, of course, Joe. Thanks for having me. So besides it being the end of March in Massachusetts and it's still cold and miserable, my daughter's a, a freshman at Syracuse at a blizzard yesterday, <laughs> March 28th. Besides all the Starbucks unionization going on in Boston, some other very important stuff going on in the Commonwealth with regard to this case and what it means for, you know, the joint employer standard, the independent contractor standard. Can you unpack kind of the the, the, the base of this case with 7-Eleven uh, vis-a-vis their franchisees and what the court has found? And then we'll talk about after that what it all means for the rest of us. But what, what's, what's, what, where's the state of play right now? Yeah, no, of course. So, you know, the decision came down from the Supreme Court of Massachusetts uh, last week. And basically the, the question in front of the court was, does the FTC franchise rule and the Lanham Act preempt state ABC, te- the Massachusetts state ABC test for worker classification? The plaintiffs in the case, the, the franchisees, obviously have made a claim, as you alluded to, that they are misclassified and should be classified as employees of 7-Eleven based on the amount of control uh, 7-Eleven exerts, or at least they say that 7-Eleven exerts over them. And the question, like I said before the court, was whether or not the FTC franchise rule and the Lanham Act, which require franchisors to exert certain amounts of control, uh, among other things, whether those two, the Lanham Act and then the franchise rule, whether those two things preempted the state's ABC test. The court ruled that they do not and that the state's ABC test does apply or can apply to the franchise model, in this case, specifically to the question between 7-Eleven franchisees and franchisors. You know, basically, the court said that it's possible to comply with both the state's ABC test while also complying with the FTC franchise rule and the Lanham Act. So, you know, it it isn't obviously the the ruling we were hoping for. But at the same time, it it does. You know, there is some extremely helpful comments about the relationship uh, in the in the court's opinion. You know, the court states that the controls required under the Lanham Act do not themselves preclude the showing required under the first prong of the ABC test. So, you know, actually, the, the court is saying that that it's possible to satisfy both. And, and in their decision, this doesn't immediately mean that 7-Eleven franchisees are deemed employees of 7-Eleven. Um, what it means is that the court, the Supreme Court, laid out a number of factors to consider that as the case is now remanded back to the First Circuit, the First Circuit will then apply those factors and make a determination um, whether or not answering the question in this particular case, whether the franchisees are, are misclassified. But, you know, again, while, while the decision on its face is disappointing, there are a number of useful nuggets, uh, if you will, in the language that uh, I think will will hopefully prove to be helpful over time. So, so that's so now. So just so I'm clear, the Supreme Court has basically kicked it back to the appeals court. And now the appeals court will make yet another decision and incorporate what the state Supreme Court found as part of their decision making process. Correct? Yes, that's correct. Case now goes back to the First Circuit Court of Appeals. Uh, they will either reverse the uh, their original grant of summary judgment, which was uh, in favor of 7-Eleven franchise or or affirm it on some other grounds. Um, but yet yeah, the the case basically the Supreme Court, the question to, to the Supreme Court was not necessarily 
whether the franchisees were misclassified, what, but instead was, is it possible to apply both the federal franchise rule, the Lanham Act, and the state's ABC test? Uh, and the court said, yes, that's a possible. Now go, but now they kick it back down to the First Circuit saying, in that, within that context, First Circuit, up to you to make a decision about the, the classification question. Okay. So if in, 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 I know you've got members and friends and all sides of this issue, so I'm not trying to make you uh, radioactive here, but you know, if, if you're, if you're the franchisor, your 7-Eleven was the Supreme court decision, good news or bad news? Less than ideal. Uh, certainly less than okay. ideal, obviously the 7-Eleven and you know, the, the entire franchise business model uh, and IFA. I mean, obviously, obviously IFA filed an amicus brief uh, together with Duncan brands in this case, urging the court, um, to rule in the other direction. Um, so on its face, again, the, the dis- this decision is disappointing and certainly not ideal. But at the same time, if we're going to look at this in a glass is half full, or at least it's not half empty, there is still a, you know, there's still a, the ultimate decision to be made will now be made by the First Circuit Court of Appeals in the particular in this particular question. So the other thing that can keep in mind is that, you know, the case, you know, as everybody knows, franchising as a business model is made up of thousands of brands and thousands of various franchise agreements and various structures. Um, so no matter what the ruling in this particular case is, uh, once the First Circuit does make its ultimate decision, it is not necessarily apply across the board because the First Circuit is going to look at this particular set of facts uh, and make a decision based on that. So even if it, uh, and again, I don't want to you know, prognosticate or get the cart too far in front of the horse, but you know, folks need to take with a grain of salt that uh, you know, this Whatever the decision may, may be when it gets back to the First Circuit, obviously, we we uh, we believe that that 7-Eleven should prevail, uh, 7-Eleven franchisor, and, and that their franchisees are independent franchisees, as we've said all along. But even no matter what happens, the decision by the First Circuit is only going to be uh, applicable to this particular set of facts. Okay. So a couple, couple things. While it is they're not legislating from the bench, which is we've established. It's about this particular case and the nuances of this particular franchise agreement and so forth and so on. But having said that, if, if Duncan at all others filed amicus briefs, that must mean that, you know, there's some potential exposure. There's some, some bleed there potentially that could affect either their franchise structure or others. Is there some there there in that statement? Sure. Yeah. I mean, obviously, anytime that there's been an opportunity for a court at any level to answer the question of whether or not an ABC test and franchising are somewhat incompatible, which is what we've said all along. Um, you know, this goes back to our discussions on AB5 beginning back in uh, 2018 or so. And, and basically our position that uh, franchisors, regardless of, of the brand, obviously have certain obligations under the FTC franchise rule and under the Lanham Act to exert specific amounts of control and directions uh, over their franchisees in order to meet the criteria of being a franchisor. So, you know, all along, our position has been that the the requirement of franchisors to do those things and exert those controls make it, like I said, by its very definition, incompatible with a strict application of the ABC test. So certainly there is some possible, you know, bleed over, if you will, from a decision at any level, um, saying that no, you know, in our view, in this case, in our view as a Supreme Court of Massachusetts, a franchisor can comply with the Lanham Act, the FTC rule, and the ABC test can also be applied to the relationship. So the two are not mutually exclusive, which is what we've been kind of pushing. So again, that's not, again, that goes back to the, 
while the decision is certainly not ideal, whether it's 7-Eleven or whether it's for a broader franchise business model perspective, you know, there are now the, the court has laid out or the Supreme Court has laid out certain factors that will be looked at uh, or that they've basically said the First Circuit should look at. Um, so not not the you know end all be all, so to speak. But again, not ideal and something that from a franchise business model perspective, we still think that the, the court, you know, is misguided in its in its opinion. But again, there, there's still the potential for the First Circuit to come out on the other side. So let's say hypothetically, Jeff, that, as you say, the First Circuit takes this rationale from the state Supreme Court, reincorporates it into their decision making process, and they come out with some level of a different result uh, that's somewhat more franchisee, per se, friendlier than their original uh, result. Will that open? And first of all, what is the timing do you anticipate on that process? Like when will the first court, do you think, ballpark have a new decision? If yeah, that's a great question. I, I don't have the answer there. I don't know uh, what, what we expect in terms of timeline from the First Circuit Court. Um, I'm actually awaiting. I have a similar question out to my outside counsel. So I, I wish I had a more uh, a more specific answer for you there, but I just don't at this point. And then we can anticipate, though, that, you know, we do have organizations of franchisees out there. If they're, if they're paying attention to other issues, not as, as directly as this particular issue, do you think there'll be, if, if again, under the hypothetical that the First Circuit comes back and alters their decision some way, is that going to open a Pandora's box for other franchisees to go in there, for other franchise, franchisee systems or franchisee associations to go in there and, and try to... You know, sure. Dismantle their 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 current agreements. Yeah, I, you know, I think there's certainly a possibility that if if ultimately the first circuit rules uh, in favor of the franchisees and basically says that yes, you have been misclassified and and are employees of Seven Eleven under the ABC, under the state's ABC test. Yeah, that that will certainly not be ideal for a whole host of reasons. Clearly, for Seven Eleven as a as a brand, but more broadly, yeah, absolutely. I think if if the decision from the first circuit goes uh, the wrong direction. There's certainly going to be, uh, or there's certainly the potential to be an influx of litigation similar to this. You know, it, it's it's impossible to say, you know, w- what brands or you know what franchisee group may, you know, come up with this next. But you know, obviously, a decision that goes uh, in favor of the franchisees in this particular case um, will, would certainly, I think, lead to the possibility of, of increased litigation in this field. Uh, especially, you know, you look at plaintiffs' counsel here, uh, Shannon Liz Riordan, who's been involved in various uh, franchise misclassification efforts and from a litigation perspective uh, over the last number of years. You know, if she is ultimately successful in this case, I think that will certainly leads to the potential for her to bring similar suits, you know, down the road. So, um, you know, obviously we can't, we don't have a, I wish we had a, a crystal ball, but um, yeah, there's no, there's no question that the a result in the wrong direction has the, the serious potential to open up a, a, an influx of litigation in this space. Well, well said. So you're so hypothetically, you know, you're, you're the general counsel of uh, franchise or brand X. Uh, you were watching Massachusetts very, very closely for obvious reasons. Are there a couple, two or three other states with litigation pending that you should be watching as well? We don't have that. I know of any misclassification litigation pending under an ABC test right now. You know, obviously we look at, you know, IFA had filed litigation challenging the state of California's Assembly Bill 5 and their ABC test, which was ultimately not successful. Um, so that that you know, that was not an ideal result there, but something that the that the, the judge in the Ninth Circuit dismissed, but without prejudice, which means that the case could ultimately be revived if we if we so choose. Obviously, we haven't made the determination there yet. But 
you know, I think that <clears throat> for the time being, I think all eyes in the ABC kind of franchise space will be on the First Circuit Court of Appeals for when they re-examine this case now that it's been remanded back to them. You know, and I think, again, you just have to pay, you know, if I'm if I'm general counsel of a franchise brand, I'm paying ultimate attention to not only this case, but also for potential uh, ABC legislation across the country, of which we have not the seen thus far. Uh, we were, uh, you know, we probably discussed this maybe right here on this podcast, uh, you know, a couple of years ago, pre-pandemic, which at this time, at this point seems like a, like a lifetime ago. But, you know, when California passed AB5 back in 2017, 18 timeframe, you know, we were we were fearful at that point of an influx of, of copycat legislation. And we started to hear kind of rumblings of that from places like New York and Illinois. Uh, and then all of a sudden uh, it was 2020 and we had, you know, COVID hit and the pandemic sucked basically all of the oxygen out of the room. And for better or for worse, we haven't seen the with what we had originally feared as an influx of, of state ABC law. Um, so that's certainly a, a, if we can take any silver lining out of the p- pandemic, maybe it for maybe it um, foreshadowed or for, forestalled an influx of that. But, you know, right now, I think the most the poignant litigation that we're looking at is, is this one, the 7-Eleven case right now. So that, that's what people keep their keep their eyes on for the time being. Well, it has to be at some level uh, kind of gallows humor, but it has to be at some level kind of refreshing to, to be able to talk about something other than California. <laughs> yeah, I, you know, it's funny. Uh, you know, I, every so often people make jokes about, wouldn't it be easier if we just kind of pushed California out to sea? And I was like, well, in a sense it would be, but then what the heck am I going to do with 96% of my time? So, you know, yeah, the, we obviously we have, uh, and I, you know, I'm, I'm sure we've talked at length at California and their challenges, our challenges in California, and we have a number of them, especially... <laughs> Uh, right now, given what they're trying to do from a legislative perspective, and that's a whole different podcast discussion, I'm sure. It is it is nice to sometimes remember that I do cover other states and other issues that are not always California all the time. So, yeah, it is a, somewhat of a breath of fresh air, even if it's with a grain of salt. Well, yeah, I, you know, and, and kudos to you guys. What's going on in California is, is crazy with regard to, to the FAST Act. And, you know, for us to be successful, we're going to have to just you know, dot every I and cross every T and run a, a just almost flawless effort. Uh, and to your credit, to you uh, at IFA and to your counterparts at CRA and I guess now NRA and your chain brands, you guys have done just about that. So kudos to what's going on on the ground in California. You know, I think if, you know, when the dust settles, there, there won't be much that we kind of could say we should have done or could have done. You guys have been been doing it all. So kudos to you all. Yeah, we appreciate that. Um, obviously, you know, and all the brands that have, have been, been engaged with us and, you know, California is top of mind for everybody, especially those in the, the quick service and counter service restaurant space right now. And yeah, we were fortunate to have great partners with, you know, within with CRA and NRA and the, our, our um, uh, coalition team at Rodriguez Strategies, who's been great working with us. And, you know, we're putting together a heck of a heck of an effort. And I don't think, like you said, at, at the end of this, uh, whatever way it shakes out, I don't think we're going to be able to point back to saying there isn't anything we haven't done because we are turning over every rock uh, that we can in this effort and we'll continue to do so through uh, through the end, which is, you know, which is the uh, through the summer, end of August. Uh, and, and we'll see where it all shakes out, but certainly throwing everything we can at it. Well, Jeff, between the uh, the courtroom, the hearing room, the Senate floor, the House floor and, and the uh, ballot initiatives, you're, you're a busy man, one on paper hanger. Uh, but we appreciate you taking the time, visit with us, get us straight on Massachusetts and kind of level set what 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 really happened there and what where the puck is if you will uh in terms of what our expectations are going forward so appreciate your time your expertise your leadership and uh all you do for for everyone listening take care of course thanks a lot appreciate it always good to be with you guys 
Well, we are all fortunate that we have Jeff on point uh, for this very complicated, very difficult issue, and his team at IFA do a great job in this space. What do you think, Franklin? He he's, he he says that the the ramifications are, are, are for this case and this case only that potentially don't have widespread. But you never know what happens in that appellate court if they go back and reverse the decision. Then it could be kind of wide open for other companies. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, any big development in this, putting this into context, and this lawyer has a long history of litigating <clears throat> franchisor, franchisee, joint employer type issues across the country, but she's based in the Northeast. She's doing it to set a string of precedents. She is doing this with, she's on a mission from God. And <clears throat> we know how this fits into the broader strategy of a lot of the industry opponents. So in that context, you know, you got to pay attention to all these little developments because the the other side, including the lawyers that are they're executing this case, but also unions and other opponents are looking to make a gain here, a little a little inch gain here and a little inch gain there and, you know, tick away, tick away, tick away. And so this is that's that's what they're doing. And, and even if it's a small precedent, it has a limited applicability. They're going to take that and they're going to run with it. And they're going to push it further and further and further. So within that context, we have to pay attention to this stuff. It's really important. Starbucks Watch 2022. Well, Franklin, it's time for our weekly update of what's going on in the world of Starbucks and other unions. We got a lot of activity at Amazon this week as well. So let's do the latest and greatest. Starbucks has now, I think, eight units that are officially uh, approved a union in a ninth one in Knoxville, Tennessee, that is in some doubt. What's what's the latest and greatest? Well, you nailed it there. We have Mesa, another unit in Mesa, and we have Knoxville, which looks like it's probably going to go for the union. There's one vote. The union won, essentially, but there's one vote in dispute that would make it a tie. Tie goes to the employer. So we'll have to watch that get worked out. You bury the lead, Joe. I think the lead is that, and I just flipped this to you to put in midnight reads because I just became aware that enough people are seeing this. Is that Jeffries and some other, you know, financial firms analysts kind of expressed at the beginning of the week this week or the end of last week that Starbucks twenty five percent dip in their stock value since the beginning of the year. I think they use the term that this unionization campaign is a quote unquote contributing factor. So, you know, we reported the past couple of weeks that kind of ESG focused financial firms somewhere in the neighborhood, of like three or four billion dollars, something, you know, some some a lot, a lot of investors within Starbucks um, have been elevating their concerns around this and pushing for the company to sign a neutrality agreement. We're starting to see some in that industry start to say that maybe the stock price is being impacted by this campaign. So that's a that's a notable development in the campaign that gives the organizers a lot more leverage if it's true. But, you know, true or not true, when the financial analysts are all starting to say it's true, it kind of starts becoming true, right? It's a self-fulfilling kinda, prophecy because they can yeah. make it true. Yeah. So like that's why it's a big development worth flagging this week. It's kind of like the the investor class is starting to get a little skittish. Yeah. And, you know, that, that's, that's what it's about, man. Follow the money. And, um, you know, we've talked about investor activism here the last two or three weeks now on the podcast. Just this morning, I saw a roll call that your old buddy, your old buddy Bernie is uh, stoking the 
the investors as well, putting pressure on investors to put pressure on Starbucks as well. Obviously, you know, we said at length, and I believe that was a contributing factor to the demise of Kevin Johnson in terms of his tenure as CEO. When the money starts talking, people start walking. And, yeah, uh, that, that roll call piece featured what Senator Sanders is doing. But in, in, to your point, it also featured this this big ESG component, which is that the SEC in 2020 has requested, since 2020 has been requesting a lot more information around human capital from companies, and that the SEC may be moving to including some metrics around that through the rulemaking process in the near future. And essentially what that kind of, those disclosures and that involvement from the SEC in this space is going to throw fuel in the fire on a lot of union organizing campaigns and corporate campaigns. And so that roll call piece, Joe, we should put that in Midnight Reads too. Uh, it was one of the first things I read this morning. That That is, uh, there's a lot in there in that one little short article that has a lot of kind of long-term implications, uh, not only for Starbucks, but for other companies. Franklin, switching uh, from Starbucks to the Amazon, the other kind of union effort we've been watching for the last year. It looks like the votes are in in Bessemer, Alabama warehouse. Only 40%, 39% of workers cast ballots in that election. Is that good or bad for Amazon? I think it's probably good, but... I would think so too, but tell me why. Uh, I, I don't know. We'd have to call Phil Wilson in to tell us what the... Or someone you know in that space to tell us what the, the normal is and you know, who it potentially benefits. I just have a hard time thinking that the union's going to make up. I, I guess I'm biased by the previous vote and how lopsided it was. It's just, it seems super hard, if not impossible for me, that the union can make up all that ground. And you would think if they would, it would have to be a higher turnout affair that they would need to, to turn out new voters, right? Because the ones that have already gone and voted, they voted down the union substantially. So you know, what's what's interesting, so I think they're going to lose. I, I think, you know, I, I think that was predetermined. And if they do win by some miracle, then holy Moses, that is going to be a, a story that's going to rock kind of the headlines. You know, th- there were a lot of claims coming out of this that win or lose, that this was going to spur a whole new wave of labor organizing. And I was kind of, yeah, kind of shrug- shoulder shrugged at that. But you know, there may have been some truth to that, Starbucks and some other things we've seen that all the discussion and talk and traffic, social media around the Amazon organizing campaign down there, win or lose, the first round may have helped to spur some of this stuff. And the second round may be true. Win or lose, it it may help to drive a, a larger conversation. So there may be value in it, even if they get crushed, which I suspect they probably will. Yeah, the, the, the turnout was lower uh, this time around than it was the first time around. They got walloped the first time around. Uh, but unlike, uh, and I think as we as we tape this on Thursday, the, the official voting, the public voting, is start to is set to commence this afternoon. But with Starbucks and the votes we've watched, we're talking a dozen votes, nine votes, fifteen votes, eighteen votes, and it takes a couple hours to do that. These are thousands of votes. I think over twenty five hundred people. Uh, voted in the election. And so it will take days, if not a week or two, for the NLRB to go through that those ballot by ballot tallies. So we'll be watching that closely and uh, reporting back on that next week. In the realm of 
brands being political footballs. We'll spend just a few seconds since we've talked about Disney the last three podcasts, but the saga continues this week. It escalated kind of a little viscerally here in the state of Florida. Governor signed that controversial legislation into law on Monday. Disney put out a statement basically saying, well, we hope the law gets repealed or we hope the courts throw it out. And that was not met well in Tallahassee. What's going on there? I mean, this is capture the imagination of every Politico in the state of Florida. Uh, Politico, literally, Florida is led every morning. This morning, it's our Florida Republican serious about going after Disney. So, I mean, it's like it, it continues to escalate. You're right. He signed the bill. Disney came out against. Disney has frozen political contributions. The repubs that sponsored the bill have returned all their donations from Disney to Disney. We have the kind of echo chamber that was built around critical race theory that, without going too deep into detail, has like a lot going on in the state of Florida. Moms of Lib- for Liberty is kind of the group, the own the ground organizing group that has been born out of the critical race theory conversation nationally. They're Florida based out of Brevard and Indian River County. Those where the founders are from. They have 30 chapters in the state. So the critical race theory, kind of that that world is is deeply embedded in in Florida. The legislature made school board races partisan this year and put term limits on it for the first time ever. So you, you, you can't like separate those things out. And the, the critical race theory world turns it guns this week on Disney. So they found a bunch of I guess they were intercompany webinars and recordings where that you know they're they're changing all this stuff they have been changing all this stuff in disney they'll never no, they'll no longer say ladies and gentlemen for instance in inside of disney they'll use kind of gender neutral terms and, and phrases and so they, they they had a bunch of screen captures of all of this and it's just been lighting up the these conservative networks all week obviously that's fueling desantis's fire and and others and you know, this 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 little episode is likely over time to kind of downshift and, you know, settle back out. And, you know, I'm, I'm sure Disney's going to be welcomed with open arms around the state capitol by Republicans of all stripes. But that ain't happening right now. This thing just continues to kind of escalate week by week and put the brand in in a tougher position. They have literally become a political football and it has become the feeding frenzy is on. The blood is in the water. And it is the thing now to attack Disney if you're if you if you're a repub continues to escalate, Joe. Yeah, and and we just talked about stock price. You know, Disney's stock price over the last year or so has fallen precipitously. Just the environment of of media, the pandemic, and blah blah blah, and the theme park piece of it is such a small piece of their you know overall enterprise. It'll be hard to. Uh, like like Starbucks, it will be hard to determine whether any of this 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 noise is affecting their stock price because their stock price is affected by you know their massive massive global media company right movie making company and so forth. So uh, interesting, but you know to, to Disney's credit, they they've now staked out a position. You know, let, let's see how they stick to the guns. Let's see if they they backtrack. But for for me, what I've been preaching the last couple of weeks is that now you know at least they have a position. And it looks like, you know, they're, they're, they're putting their employees first and it looks like this week they're going to stick to their guns. So we'll, we'll watch. So the, the one thing to keep in mind is when it starts to affect the P&L and, you know, potentially the stock price is within Florida, 
there's all kinds of tax breaks and Disney has been treated very favorably by a lot of government entities in the state of Florida for a lot of reasons, because they're one of the biggest employers to say they're huge economic engine. They're very important, but also they've had a very sophisticated and very well-run kind of government relations program that has earned them a lot of uh, special treatment in, in some circumstances. Some of it do, maybe some of it not, but there's a lot of stuff in the local level, the state level, all sorts of different jurisdictions. Heck, Disney's its own government, (laughs) for crying out loud. So it has been blessed as its own government, its own taxing entity. If this kind of moves from from just this week's bluster and everybody's, you know, kind of taking pot shots at each other on social media, and then it kind of dies down and goes away, I don't think a lot of that stuff's in jeopardy. But if this stuff continues to escalate, and the problem is the political incentives are set up here for both parties to continue to escalate it. If this continues to escalate, then a lot of that stuff is like all of a sudden on the table and fair game. And we've seen from this governor and certainly from this legislature, they're not afraid to throw a sharp elbow here or there. And so, and in fact, there were legislators this week kind of threatening Disney status as its own, its own government, its own, its own entity. Essentially, the, they can pull that away if they really wanted to. So, Joe, in terms of stock price PL, like there are levers that lawmakers and policymakers here in the state can pull that will directly impact bottom line pretty quickly. Um, we haven't gotten to that point yet. But the, do we get there? That that's that's kind of a question on, on a lot of people's minds. I don't think so, but we could. So anyway. Yeah, just it's you know, I don't even know what to say to that. It's it's just so so fascinating it's, and so disheartening, disappointing on so many fronts, and embarrassing for the state, obviously, to be going through this. But it is what it is. And you know, again, we we watch corporate behavior. We watch how corporations protect their brands and protect their employees and protect their you know their standing in communities. And we'll continue to report on it when when events warrant. It's time for Legislative Scorecard, where we go around the country and update you on the latest legislative and regulatory developments. And as always, we start with wages. Franklin, the minimum wage bill in Hawaii is careening toward passage. It looks like this may be the year. Still moving through the process. Another week, another update, still moving through the process. It has another uh, Senate committee to go through. They're looking to pass essentially a, another bill at this point. They may have to reconcile it at the end, but you know we're in the, the sausage making at this point. So we're just still plotting through the process. And across the country in Washington, D.C., Franklin, that ballot initiative in June to eliminate the tip credit seems to have hit the skids a little bit. What's going on there? It is a stumbling block. So they got all their signatures in ahead of the deadline. We already reported on that. Now uh, the elections office has to sample those submitted petitions to ensure that there's proper distribution across all the city districts. In that sampling, it's not a full count. It's a sampling It was inconclusive, essentially, within the margin of error as to whether or not they had enough signatures in one uh, district. So they're essentially going to have to probably hand count now to make sure that they had enough signatures from that one district. The challenge is, is now they're up against really past the deadline by which all this had to have a bow in it so they could get the information to get the ballots printed. So this this process with the elections boards is jeopardizing kind of the timelines and making the ballot, the June primary ballot. It looks like they're still probably in process to make it on the, uh, the like they could use these signatures again, the general election ballot. 
but there's going to be a lot of litigation on this. So it's kind of a little hiccup in the, you know, internal processes of the election board, which is at this juncture potentially jeopardizing the whole the whole thing. But we'll see. I can't imagine they fell short in this one district, but it's possible. So we've got to go through the hand count process. Joe, that's a long way to say it's a mess. This is a good development for the industry, though, because it's not signed, sealed, deliver. This thing's going to be on the ballot, which is probably going to pass overwhelmingly if it makes it to the ballot. It's just amazing to me how professional ballot you know, signature gatherers could kind of make these fundamental mistakes. This kind of drives me a little crazy. Franklin, we talked on a little bit last week about New Hampshire and how the Republicans and the legislature were kind of trying to repeal the governor's signature uh, voluntary paid medical leave program that he got passed the year before. He undaunted continues on. The state issued an RFP for private insurance to get in the mix. Yeah, the, the issue is elevating in the state. So uh, they issued an RFP for insurers to manage the state's voluntary medical pool. You remember the, the House uh, nearly voted to repeal it. So, you know, we'll see what the where this goes in the Senate, you know, uh, what a veto strategy looks like. So we've got a bunch still going on, uh, a, a lot still swirling around this this program right now, Joe. Franklin, there's hardly been a name mentioned on this podcast over the last five years more than David Weil, but we might not be talking about him for very much longer. Well, we kind of buried the lead here. This, this, if this had been a little earlier in the week and not right at the very end, we would have probably had this up as a as a segment. In stunning fashion, David Weil's nomination was defeated. Congratulations, everyone, but in particular, congratulations, Mr. Matt Holler, with the uh, International Franchise Association, who kind of led the charge on this. This became a proxy fight over the joint employer issue, um, his nomination. He targeted restaurants systematically and targeted the franchise business model systematically in his previous tenure at the Labor Department. And this became a huge fight. You, it's not often that a nominee is brought to the Senate floor or you know, cloture is invoked and then, you know, the Senate majority leader loses that vote. That just does not happen very often. It's kind of embarrassing, to be honest with you. And so the manner in which this nomination went down in flames is pretty dramatic by kind of even D.C. procedural standards. And that also like even puts more a spotlight on how, you know, this issue of joint employer and the bundle of issues related to it is not a slam dunk for the labor community. That even within the Democratic caucus at the highest level, with the highest amount of pressure, with the highest amount of arm twisting, you know, the business community can win. And we saw that in full display here. This WOW nomination was not really about David WOW as much as it became this proxy fight over this, this larger set of issues. And the business community won. So we had the Arizona senators, Kelly and uh, Cinema breaking and then Senator Manchin following suit. And so David Wiles' nomination, Mr. Keith Offer, is done after six months of us talking about it. It is done now. And honestly, I can't believe it. I, I can't believe the way that it happened. I can't uh, believe Chuck Schumer took it to the floor without having his ducks in a row. I'm just amazed. That's, Mitch McConnell, you, I, you don't see that happen to Mitch McConnell. No. So, yeah, it's ugly and it's a big win for for the industry. And and IFA has been, NRA has been involved. U.S. Chamber has been involved. A lot of people have been involved. But IFA has kind of led the charge in this one in particular. 
Staying with the Labor Department, Franklin, the uh, the president's budget is calling for a hefty, hefty increase to the Labor Department and specifically those agencies that are about worker protection. Yeah. <clears throat> so the Labor Department is uh, having trouble finding labor. Um, they're in a labor crunch. They can't hire people. So they need to bump up their, their benefits. They need to be uh, more com- competitive offerings to attract people into these jobs. They've had attrition in particular into these positions where they're doing investigations and that sort of thing. So they're asking for more money. The NLRB, by the way, is doing the same, asking for more money. So we're in that, that budget process now. We'll see, uh, we'll see where all this shakes out. And Franklin, we talked uh, at the top of the show about what was going on in the, in the union world with uh, Amazon and Starbucks. But late last night, we got some word about two of the Amazon results, one in Alabama and one in New York, kind of almost official, but not official yet. But most of the votes have been counted. Holy Toledo, Joe. That's what I have to say about that. I can't believe the Bessemer results. I, I, I mean, the New York results are astounding in their own right. But the Bessemer result, they got, the union got crushed in Bessemer and they lost or they're losing right now. You know, we still process a lot closer. 993 to 875. That is, that's the Bessemer vote. And so the union's down, but that's, that's close. I mean, the first time it was lopsided. Now the union argued that the placement of the mail, the drop box within parking lot and the security cameras like influenced and scared off a lot of voters. And they also made some other charges, but man, I'm surprised by that number. But there's still still about 400 votes, a little over 400 votes that are, uh, have been challenged. They're going to take a while to kind of go through those votes. So it's about 120 vote gap. Now there are 400 and some votes, 416 votes that are challenged. So long way from being over. Don't, you know, I don't think the union will close the gap. Man, it's a lot closer than it once was. Man. But speaking of close calls, New York, kind of the other way, about 1,500 uh, warehouse workers voted yes and about 1,100 voted no. And so I think there's still a few ballots to be counted there as well. But, you know, if they knock off an Amazon fulfillment center, that's a big, big deal. It's an earthquake. I mean, this is this is. How many, Joe, how many Walmart distribution centers are unionized? Mr. Blutarski, 0.0. I mean, th- th- this is a huge deal. This, this, is, this, is, this is a huge deal. We've had a lot of, yeah. you know, it's Staten Island. It's, it's, we've had a lot of organizing in New York. This will, this will absolutely kind of fan the flames. I don't think there's any doubt about that. So, yeah, it's a, it's a really big deal. It'll be a really big storyline coming out this week. Yeah, and then and, and top it off, two more, two more Starbucks uh, went by the wayside this week. Uh, you mentioned at the top of the show, Mesa, Arizona, and Knoxville, Tennessee, although that one's still kind of in being contested. So big week on the union front, uh, enough to drive a person to drink where they can do in, in Maine and get it delivered. Yep. To go uh, alcohol beverages have been extended to March 30, 2025. The governor has signed that. It is signed, sealed, deliver. Congratulations to the industry. And lastly, sustainability, some some movement in Hawaii and Maryland. Franklin, we've been talking about Hawaii forever, and it just continues to, to kind of inch its way through the process. Another Senate committee next week. Yeah, there's, we're in the sausage-making process. So this has been approved by the House. It's been added to another Senate committee. You know, we're just continuing to go through the process here. This is probably behind the minimum wage legislation in terms of advancing through the process. But it's getting pretty close to the end at this point. And then switching over to Maryland. This is likely 
to face a gubernatorial veto, and it's unclear if the the votes are there to to override. It's all going to get sorted out here. But legislation is on the way to the governor's desk that basically would do kind of a comprehensive carbon neutrality climate action plan in the state. It is called the Climate Solutions Now Act of 2022. Among other things, it'll transition off of natural gas, which the industry is concerned about because, you know, so many kitchens have natural gas. But this is much more expansive than that. It will push the entire state across the board towards renewable energy and increased efficiency. And you're going to see a lot more of this. You see companies making these commitments. You see cities making these commitments across the country, across the world, really. And you're going to see more states doing this as well. So this is the first in many conversations we're going to have in this issue set. And and the governor, who is a moderate by any standard, moderate Republican, uh, has been pretty, pretty vocal in his opposition to this bill since day one. And, it, he, you know, all things being equal, he would likely veto it. And so to your point, you know, there's still time for them to override the veto and they're they're putting their ducks in a row to see if they can pull that one off. So that, that'll be interesting. But this is a far reaching piece of legislation. And to your point, could be a blueprint for for other states in the space, you know, basically trying to wean the state off of natural gas. That's that's <laughs> that's a pretty big, uh, pretty big challenge they've laid down for themselves there in, in my home state of Maryland. Interesting stuff to watch. Franklin, another scorecard for the week. Busy week, but for some reason, it seemed like a little slower week than normal. I guess with the union stuff, just not a whole lot of bills making their way through the legislative process. But we know that a lot of uh, uh, legislatures are closing up, getting toward deadlines like in Hawaii, like in Maryland. So we're going to see some some runners come through the finish line here pretty soon. And we're in spring break season. So a lot of, a lot of folks are taking spring break, you know, mm-hmm. so... Um, yeah, we're just in this weird kind of in-between stage. We just got over crossover deadlines. A lot of legislatures let out and, and in spring break for the full-time legislatures. So anyway, that's it. All right. Well, we'll have another scorecard for you next week. Well, Franklin, it's March Madness, but you know it's big time. You're a big time school if your March Madness carries over into April. And that has what has happened for one University of North Carolina, the fine alma mater of one Franklin Coley. Final four, pal. I know I know where you're gonna be Saturday evening. In are you are you gonna be alone? Do you, alone. Do you have civilians around you? Is it is alone. it alone time for you? Is it is it all business? Alone. It's alone. I can't I can't do it. I can't have people in my ear telling me they're stupid play-by-play commentary. I can't be dealing with Duke fans. I can't. I need to be home alone. In fact, I've already cleared the house. Had a social obligation that night, and about midway through the second half, I had to start explaining to Dawn like, how historic this was and why I was going to miss it. Since since then, like Eric Church has canceled a sold-out concert so he can be at the game, and there's been other points that I could reference to to stand by my opinion but yes no I uh I've cleared I've cleared the decks I got to be not only on my couch but in the exact same position on my couch that I have been for the previous games because the lucky spot we cannot mess with the mojo at this point yeah. um, so you're playing your your fiercest rival again you're playing duke and you you could once again you ruined his swan song Cameron Indoor Stadium, and you could send him into retirement with another loss this Saturday night. It couldn't be more dramatic. It, it literally could not be more. I can't even like begin to 
the drama here, or he could be redeemed by having been so embarrassed. Coach K on his big night where they had 109 players in attendance and he got, you know, they got dismantled and, and shamed as, you know, the, the best team in the country. They could redeem themselves by potentially advancing and winning Coach K a national championship to, to walk out for the first time since John Wooten in, into the into the history book. John Wooden into the history book. So like that it couldn't be this is the first time they've met in the NCAA tournament. Like it's it couldn't be more dramatic. It, it really couldn't. Like I've got butterflies in my stomach talking about it right now. And the game is two and a half days away and you're already apoplectic. So uh, all right. Well, March Madness on that final note. Hope everybody has a great week. Hope everybody enjoys the March Madness this weekend if they want to partake. Stay safe, stay informed. We'll talk to you then next week. 